Greetings, salutations, hello, welcome yet again to the Right On Track podcast. It's so great to have you here. It's been too long. Where have you been? But never fear, we are here to entertain and provide all facts and factoids about Thomas the Tank Engine and friends. But never fear, I'm never joined alone. To my left-hand side, I have the cricketer himself creating in Caroline's car. It is Tom Parry. Hello, Master Denham. It's so good to be with you once again. And of course, we have the pleasure of being joined by our third co-host who's been with us since the very beginning. Of course, it is Master Connor Jonas. Hello, hello. It's been far too long since we three have sat together and decided to delve into the intricacies of the wonderful world of Thomas the Tank Engine and friends here on the Right on Track podcast. Yeah, gents, just... uh... Yeah, gents, just first off, it has been ages, and I think it's been, like, what, six months, like, since we've released an episode. In that time, like, what have we been up to? Well, Master Denham, I've uh, been keeping a low profile these past few months. Uh, With the pandemic ongoing, I've just been uh, keeping it easy, so to speak. Uh, Yeah, I've just been doing my own little projects, keeping my film blog going, of course, and uh, yeah, catching up with people when and where I can. So yeah, for me, it's been not so busy, but Master Connor, I understand it has been a bit more busy for you. Uh, yes, it has been. Uh, I've been busy studying my engineering. I celebrated my 20th birthday. Uh, I've been putting together some designs for creating a little rail trolley to explore some abandoned railways. Um, as well as exploring all these different parts that I can whilst obeying COVID regulations. Uh, So it's been really busy these past few months. But the one thing that I've really been missing most has been this podcast. Uh, What about yourself, Denim? What have you been doing? Yeah, it's um, interesting that we talk about this because the way we're recording right now, um, both Connor and Parry, uh, back in Melbourne, and uh, I've moved to the big smoke of Sydney. Um, I'm currently doing my radio and podcast training, um, which is amazing, great fun, and I'm having a ball doing it. So, so Parry, take us out of our amazing anticipation. What on earth could we be reviewing on the podcast today? Well, on this episode and on this season of the Right on Track podcast, we are going to be looking at the feature-length motion picture Thomas and the Magic Railroad, directed by Britt Allcroft in her directorial debut, and the first ever Thomas the Tank Engine film to be screened in cinemas. Yes, it's uh, got a rather dubious legacy, I should be honest, but uh, no, it's going to be really interesting to see what we all think of it, and... uh, if indeed the film does have a legacy to be proud of. Mm. So uh, in this sort of mini-series of ours, we are going to be delving into the intricacies of the film, uh, its history, its future, or the behind-the-scenes details, what succeeded, what failed, as well as giving up overall thoughts and your thoughts as well on it. If I am honest, I don't think this has many flaws, but I know Connor will disagree with me there. Pages of notes. Pages. Yeah, look, I'm so excited to review this. Thomas and the Magic Railroad holds a very special place in my heart. I clearly remember the day being five years old, going to the cinemas, 
and seeing this movie and to this day um yeah i remember that so fondly um parry why don't you give us a little bit of a an introduction to what on earth is thomas and the magic railroad well thomas and the magic railroad is not so much a thomas the tank engine film as it is a shining time station film so for those of our listeners who aren't aware Shining Time Station was the vehicle that they used to introduce Thomas the Tank Engine to audiences in the United States. So it was a television show which had the narrator at the time, Ringo Starr, playing a character called Mr. Conductor. And Mr. Conductor's tales at Shining Time would be used as a sort of bridge between the Thomas the Tank Engine stories and the real world, the American Railroad, so to speak, that... uh, as it's referred to in the tv show yes um having not witnessed the tv series ever in my life not even in preparation for this podcast i um yes i can't say that i am overly familiar with all the goings on of that particular program can i say i have watched every episode it's very good you should both watch it it's pretty much like if the world of Thomas was almost inserted into a family tea time pantomime sitcom. Um, And I think, if anything, whilst Ringo Starr was fantastic, I think George Carlin took the staple role of Mr. Conductor in this. He's This foul-mouthed comedian is so good with children in this show, and I think... It's one of the best things about it. And you have Didi Connors, Stacy Jones, and you also have um, Schema. You've got this ensemble of characters that all bounce off each other. Schema, he's the, as you can tell by the name, he's the, I guess, the antagonist of most stories, not all. And um, the kids who uh, help out at Shining Time Station are the ones who, I guess, receive the moral tale uh, from their... Uh, goings-ons and um, they receive a story from Mr. Conductor from the world of the Island of Sodor, which is where the Thomas world envelops into the Shining Time world. Mm. Now, Mr. Conductor does, of course, appear in Thomas and the Magic Railroad, but here he's played by Alec Baldwin, who was the narrator of the Series 5 episodes of Thomas in the US. And he's not the only big name we've got on the cast as well. We've also got Academy Award nominee Peter Fonda, who's got top billing there. We've got Russell Means, who's a Native American actor. He appeared in films such as Pocahontas, Natural Born Killers, Last of the Mohicans. And we've also got Didi Con, as you mentioned, Denham, who appeared in Greece. And on top of that, there is also Mara Wilson, who at the time was the most popular child actress in Hollywood. Mm. Uh, well known for her roles in Mrs. Doubtfire and more mm-hmm. popular Matilda, um, mm-hmm. Mara Wilson was very much the popular uh, child actor that very much was brought in with the big names to appeal to the more child audience by having a younger protagonist, at least for the human side uh, of the story. Because whilst Thomas the Magic Railroad is a Thomas story, it does something that no other Thomas story film episode has ever done and have done since by having live action elements uh, with actual personable characters interacting 
with these model trains. Unless you count Thomas Goes Fishing when they film The Bucket. Ah, uh, of course. How could we um, forget? Yes, yes, The Bucket, all our favourite characters. But <laughs> it, it, it is a really interesting thing, and we're also going to be investigating that. But as with all good stories, we need to start somewhere. And why not start with the rather simplistic but outstanding opening credits of the film? Yes, let's do that. So in this sequence here, we hear from uh, the narrator, who is Mr. Conductor, and he paints a picture of uh, what the Island of Sonador is and where Thomas works. And Thomas is running late for his interchange with Gordon the Big Engine. Five, six, seven, eight. Who do we appreciate? Practicing your numbers, Gordon. That's a good engine. I'm counting how many seconds late you are. <laughs> what does that sign say? Hmm. Sodor Railway. Really reliable and right on time. <laughs> Signed, head of the railway, Sir Topham Hat. But you weren't on time, little Thomas. And you're being bossy, Gordon. <laughs> now, please excuse me. I'm meeting Mr. Conductor. He's looking after us while Sir Topham Hat takes a much-needed holiday. Oh, I think we can take care of ourselves. Get out of my way! Oh, I have unfinished oh, business oh, here, and I want to finish it fast! The diesel ten's back! Oh. Yes, ten out of ten for devious deeds and oh. brutal strength. The blast from the past, who hates steam engines? Maybe we do need Mr. Conductor here, after all. Hmm? On time. Yes, they do, of course, need Mr. Conductor to help out because Thomas and his friends are in peril. The villainous Diesel 10 has come back for revenge to find the Lost Engine. But who could the Lost Engine be? There's a lot of questions that arise in that short period of time. Mm, but quite a lot of questions. One of them being, why is Diesel 10 a blast from the past? Because this is his debut. We haven't seen the character before. And he's a diesel. He's not exactly old-fashioned like the steam engines are. So what history does this character have with the island of Sodor? And why is he making a return? Those are the questions which are fundamentally left unanswered by mm. this movie. He's just an antagonist and that's it it's it's like nick fury in the avengers his character development begins and ends with eye patch mm. <laughs> and, and, and therein lies i feel a very big issue uh with uh thomas the magic railroad is that by trying to combine shining time station with the uk uh style of story mushing them together they really get this strange limbo world where all our well-known engines have got American voices and the British charm is very much taken away. Then you've got this entirely different universe of canon that we're now investigating where Mr. Conductor will frequently come to the island of Sodor and there's gold dust and there's Diesel 10, who's named because he's the 10th Diesel added to the show who's a blast from the past like there's there's just so many weird questions and not only mention they rarely refer to him as diesel 10 they just say diesel which is already a character mm, quite right connor you are 
you are within your rights to be frustrated, I have to say. Uh, the other thing you would have heard in that clip there is, of course, the characters now have individual voice actors. So in leaning away from the show's tradition where it was like a storybook where a narrator read out what was happening on screen and he provided the voices of all the characters here in Thomas and the Magic Railroad, we've got the characters who all have their own distinct voices. Now, you heard Thomas and Gordon in that clip there. Thomas is voiced by a Canadian voice actor called Eddie Glenn, and he used that exact same voice in an animated television series called Blazing Dragons. And whenever I hear Thomas's voice, I don't actually hear the voice of Thomas. I hear the voice of Flicker from Blazing Dragons. That That's... Yeah, yeah. It's quite odd. It, it's distracting, to say the least. Uh, apart from Thomas and Gordon, you also heard Diesel Tender, who is voiced by Neil Crone, but who was originally going to be voiced by the Australian Keith Scott, which also lies a very interesting uh, tale to tell with Thomas and the Magic Railroad, in that it underwent severe editing changes in the last few months before release, it had different storylines, different characters, which were later dropped, and different voice actors, such as Keith Scott. Mm. And Keith Scott, of course, is a prolific Australian voice actor. He did the voices in the Blinky Bill television show. Yeah, uh, yes. Adventures oh, yes, of Rocky did. and Bullwinkle, mm-hmm. uh, narrator for George of the Jungle, Mm-hmm. Uh, he's very well known here in Australia uh, for his work. Um, and so is Neil Crone, but not necessarily as an Australian. Uh, he's from Canada and he's known a bit more as a comedian and a writer. Uh, and he had a lot of improvisation uh, that he uh, really played off well in the film, which very much is what ended up with Diesel 10 having his comedic, more slapstick side, as opposed to the more sinister and evil side that uh, we see in the earlier scenes. It's something that further evolves as the film goes on and as more characters are introduced, as we'll tap into as we go. But I think it's really interesting, this change that they made, and even still, I was talking uh, about this film um, to a friend at uni the other day and he vividly remembers still being quite scared of Diesel 10 as a kid. Um, I have to disagree with that point there because I don't remember being scared of Diesel 10 at all and I was like a real scaredy cat when I was a child. So I can see that. Yeah, I... <laughs> <Boo>. Thanks, Connor. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, when watching the film in the cinema, I was like Denim actually. This was my second film I ever saw in a cinema. Uh, I saw it when I was six years old in September of 2000. And I just remember being mesmerized by what was on screen, but at no point did I ever feel scared. So I think that is something we can say in the film's favor is that like the television show, it's something which is safe and comfortable, but it's not afraid to lean into those slightly darker elements without crossing the line. I do agree with you there on how it is trying to lean into the darker elements. I would prefer if it went a little more in, but Mm. Diesel 10 did terrify me as a kid. I did enjoy watching the film, especially because I knew he lost at the end. But I. Spoilers, come on. (laughs) 
Now we all have to go home and pack it in. Oh, no. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Thank you. No, 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 no. I vividly uh, have these recur- well, had these recurring nightmares of Diesel 10 uh, scaring me as a kid. It was Diesel 10, a grizzly bear, and a T-Rex. According to my brain, those were the three biggest threats to my survival. The ultimate trio. Mm. When today it's just overworking and quarantine. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of us can relate to that. <laughs> um, but um, after the introduction of Diesel 10, we are introduced to the other end of the universe, which is Shining Time. Yes, and at Shining Time Station, we meet a host of characters, including Mr. Conductor, played by Alec Baldwin, Stacey Jones, Billy Two Feathers, and Patch. And we get a real idea, first off, of um, how these characters work and their mechanics and what Shining Time Station is. And I think for a lot of us, especially Australian viewers, we had no preconception of what Shining Time was before Thomas and the Magic Railroad. So this was the first time I found out what Shining Time was, and I think it was the same for both of you as well. Um, yeah. What, what, what were your first thoughts of this kind of element? I guess maybe more in kind of revisitation. As an adult, having to be introduced to Thomas and Gordon and Diesel 10 and then jumping across to this live-action setting, which I wasn't familiar with at all you know it comes across as slightly jarring but on the other hand you've also got the shining time song which is composed by Humi man and that's sort of it, it's a pleasant song and it makes it, you feel comfortable it makes you feel like this is a world you could belong to it does all the things mm. that um the thomas world already does but in a very tangential human sense that I think is very separate from the Thomas universe. So it's a weird thing that like, I, I think you could definitely tell like the craftsmanship is done by Britt Allcroft. Her staple on Shining Time is very much here as well as being on Thomas or Mumphy or any of her other products. Um, so it definitely makes sense as like a Britt Allcroft kind of entity. So it's really weird to see the two kind of converging together. I absolutely agree with you. Um, especially, I agree with you, Parry, that we it is a little jarring, especially as an adult watching it. As a child, I was oblivious to it. I was sat in front of the TV watching these moving images and I recognised a blue train and I went, hey! But uh, yeah, as an adult, and especially trying to look at this critically, we go from this very like nice banter between Thomas and Gordon, who were the first two characters introduced to us in the TV series, to this jarring, dramatic, bass drum-bumming diesel, which is really good entrance. And then we go to this peaceful, kind sort idyllic? of... Idyllic? Yeah, yeah, idyllic Shining Time Station, uh, which I should add uh, is represented here by Isle of Man's uh, Castletown Railway Station on the Isle of Man Railway. Yeah, the Isle of Man substituted for the filming of the Pacific Northwest of the United States. Which I think is a lovely mm. touch that they decided to film at the Isle of Man and have that kind of Audriana inclusion. Um, yeah, I, I, I thought that was quite nice rather than just filming in the US or in Canada. I'm, I like that they went out of their way to do that. 
I wanted to point out there is a, a cameo from a certain intellect celebrity. Uh, you might see in those scenes there, there's a man wearing a jester's hat who is juggling free balls. That is Mike Staglaza from Red Letter Media. Is it really? Oh, that is well, amazing. You look at that. <laughs> <laughs> so much magic in this film. You wouldn't have guessed from the title. Um, but, but yeah, no, I, um, yeah, Mr. Plinkett doesn't turn up though, so that's always a plus. It's always an interesting thing when you look back at these films that were made for children in the 90s and the early 2000s. It seemed to be a bit of a trend that you had characters like Barney or whoever meet people in the real world there's that kind of crossing of the divide it seems like Mm. a lot of films did this and it wasn't just thomas and the magic railroad yes yes it was a trend of the time and it's something you can't blame it for uh children wanted to see their heroes in person there are very few chances you can get bluey in person or uh the Pajama animal cat things. I don't know what they're called. They're doing it Pajamas? with Tom and Jerry right now. Well, yeah, but 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 it it's it's quite rare that you can see these children's characters in person nowadays. Yeah. Um I, I remember when I was younger going to see a live action Thomas show or a live action Bob the Builder show, which would travel to theaters and shopping centers. And now it's very little of them is seen in the public eye. Mm, very true. Uh, when I was living in Bendigo in my youth, they had a lot of children's carnivals coming through. Coming through, and one of the big uh, things about the festival was you got to meet B one and B two. And this wasn't like some knockoff costume; these were the actual costumes of B one and B two. As as we enter the world of Thomas the Tank Engine, and we're introduced to all the characters, we're introduced to Gordon at the start, and we have James at Tip of Sheds, and they re-intervene with Diesel Tem. So along the film, we meet Thomas and Henry and Gordon and James and Percy and Toby, and that's kind of it. And 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 then you kind of go, hold on. One, three, four, five, six, seven. One, three, four, five, six. Hold on. We're, 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 Who's missing? We're missing vital characters here. And, and like, the, the film is very much used, uh, using a very limited cast. We're missing Edward, for one, who was the mm. original character of the entire railway universe. Mm. Uh, and then we get cameos from Bertie and Harold, albeit only once. Even one from Cranky, even though he doesn't say or do anything, and he's just sitting in the yard at Knapford for whatever reason. Mm. But we don't see these characters that we've known and love that much. It's very much a a skeleton crew of a cast, and the reason being is they shipped them all up to Canada to film. Yes, so all the model sets there that you see, they were all shot on location in Canada. They didn't bring across any of the crew at all. They left most of the parts and whatnot back in Shepherd and Studios in the UK. So, yeah, we don't get Edward or Duck or Donald or Douglas or Bill or Ben or et cetera, et cetera. And as of such, you're not just left with, like, a skeleton lot of engines here. You're also, there's also no actual human skeletons there because there are no people anywhere. Mm. At all, the only people you see on the island of Sodor are Mr. Conductor and 
Bertie the bus's driver. And that's it. <laughs> so you've got to wonder, why do they need a railway at all if only to just push and pull coaches? They don't need to collect passengers. They don't need to transport goods to anywhere in particular. So, yeah, F- further on that, yeah, because of the mass transport to Canada, obviously there was budgeting issues there because you can't even see many buildings. Hmm. You, you, you see maybe a signal box, Tidmouth Sheds, a fair few bits for the scrapyard. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then you don't have any cottages or homes. It is just railways, roads, and bushes. The other thing is no drivers and firemen. So these trains are all moving on their own accord. That completely just takes away from everything that Audrey was trying to preach. And it also makes our arguments about how much human influence do the drivers and firemen have null and void? It, it would seem that the engines are just, they're magic at this point. It's almost as if this kind of follows a Starlight Express syndrome, as if this could be one or two things. One, that like it's a boy's or a girl's train set somewhere in a bedroom around the world. Or mm. it's the fact that something terrible has happened and everyone has said, quick, get away while you can. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of questions that the film brings up and, and like, it's understandable. It is missing a lot of things, but it does look really beautiful sometimes. Oh, it really does. I think this film is, like, there's so many visuals in it where this is the best Thomas has ever looked. Um, it's had a mm. lot more money thrown in it. Um, the skies and the sets are lovely, and you can tell that it was made for a big screen. Mm. Not all the time, though, uh, especially shots of Knapford look very bare, but the colours feel very vibrant, and the engines really pop off the screen. They're shiny the entire way. And then the nighttime shots are beautiful it's not too dark but it's not too bright either it feels very realistic in its lighting unlike series four which had really really good colors but was a little bit too like yellow at times same as series five magic railroad seems to nail the lighting just right imagine if we got this Mm. lighting in like series six or seven or eight or onwards yeah, that's um, that's a discussion for another time, I think. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we've covered a lot of uh, Thomas and the Magic Railroad already. Well, I lie, actually. We haven't covered all that much. There's still much more of the film to discuss, but I think now is as good a time as any to transition to our regular musical interlude that we love so much here at Right on Track. Yes, and for this musical interlude, we have... One of the songs from the film, it's called Summer Sunday. Uh, we hear this song a little later in the film where we meet the character Junior, but it's one of our personal favourites and we hope you enjoy it too. Well, it's a summer Sunday and I'm under A cloud that shades my happiest blunder For catching the wave of another This easy life Oh, I never thought that I could ever give my life to one girl I feel like I'm finished Washed up and unaccomplished I dissolve too soon 
Thinking of swimming on a Sunday To a lady more fair than the spray and the cool of life Live my way What life? That was yesterday But I never thought that I Could ever give my life to one girl I feel like I've broken my boredom But I've awoken to this love so soon On this summer Sunday Summer Sunday Summer On a Sunday, toasting the rainbowing sand in the spray, asking how it can be that I love her. Why, why? Enough to love her, but I never thought that I would ever give my life to one girl. I feel like I've broken my boredom, but I've awoken to this love so soon. On this summer Sunday Summer Sunday Summer Sunday Summer Sunday That was Summer Sunday, a wonderful song written by Ben Wright and then sung by Ben Wright, Dominic Gibson, Dominic Gounder, Rob Jenkins, Jared McLaughlin. It's a wonderful song. It's so catchy and it, it's just a nice short length. It's not too long, not too short. It's just right. But we're back into Thomas and the Magic Railroad where Thomas is visiting Tidmouth Sheds and he comes across James who... It's feeling a little blue, which isn't so hot when you're red. Yes, and in this sequence, Diesel 10 reveals his plan that he's looking for the lost engine. Who could this elusive engine be? And he extends to say that Diesel kind will take over, as I guess has been a bit of a pre-established kind of thing in Thomas the Tank Engine before. There's this whole... Steamies versus Diesels trend. Uh, that term isn't used until a lot later on. But we, we've had the antagonizing Diesel and Class 40 and a few others come along along the way and uh, wreak havoc for Thomas and his friends um, in the TV show. So I guess the agenda is very still much the same here. But I guess there's a bit more of a uh, stronger threat. Yes, but what what this scene does, it's very well known because it's got some nice banter between uh, Thomas Diesel-Ten and then James just in the background acting very confused. Um, it, it very much establishes how these stories are going to play out through the rest of the film. Thomas is definitely going to be the protagonist, 
Diesel 10 will be the antagonist and all the other characters such as James, Gordon, Toby, Henry and Percy will be very much to the side and they're going to be confused about what's happening. They're going to not really know what the situation is going to be about and they're going to look to Thomas for advice because he is the main character. Mm, hence why the movie is called Thomas and the Magic Railroad and not Thomas and Friends. Markle mm. and the Magic uh. Railroad. um but 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 there is a slight note i'd like to make here which confused me as a child and that is the choice of james's voice actor there Mm. there there isn't uh too much uh to say about it they seem to nail james's character really well and the lines of james in the film are so well done but uh, Susan Roman's uh, uh, narration of uh, James here is very different from that of George Carlin, Alec Baldwin, and Ringo Starr, which were the three big names beforehand. And it's very effeminate, and that's because this is one of the first female voice actors we got in the world of Thomas the Tank Engine. Mm, voicing a male character, though, which is interesting. Um, yes. I am slightly disappointed they didn't bring back Michael Angelis to do his trademark James voice. It's interesting yes. that you well, say we- that because in the original cut, if you have seen it, uh, which is now released on Blu-ray, um, Michael Angelis is the voice of James. Yes, yes, Michael Angelis was originally uh, going to be in the film voicing multiple characters, uh, but he was later turned down by test audiences for sounding too old. Oh, for crying out loud. Okay, th- yeah. this is for all studio executives out there. Do not show your movie to test audiences. They nearly always get it wrong. Mm. His splatter and dodge and- is amazing. <laughs> oh, yeah. And keep in mind, at this point in the film, he was 56 years old. Mm. Which... Like, really? That is not old. Too much. Yeah, that's not old. No, there are plenty. There are plenty of actors out there today that are far older and are still playing the same roles. Very much so. And let's not forget that the trains themselves are actually older than Michelangelo's. I mean, yes. some of them were built in the early 1900s. So, mm. you know, in that sense. Michael Angelis's voice is too young for these parts. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting thing when you look at shows like The Simpsons. They've retained the same voices for so long. And Nearly four decades now, yeah. Yeah, you, you, you can tell that some of those voices are changing with age, but like they, they still kept at it. Thomas is weird because it changes voices surprisingly often for... Uh, it's legacy it's had, but, you know, evolution, change, it's a thing. And talking about evolution and maybe revolution, Diesel 10 is quite a antagonist here. And I feel this scene is the best he is in the entire film because we are yet to see the comedic side of him. And here he's just pure bully. He is based off a British rail class 42 warship diesel uh, painted in a sort of brown camo livery, but he's got a 
rather unusual attachment, which is what has made him so memorable to children and marketing teams alike. And that is his claw. Mm, He's got a grabbing claw perched on top of his cab, which appears to have a mind of its own and which has been christened with the nickname Pinchy, which is very apt. It only has the nickname Pinchy in this film, in his later appearances, such as in Calling All Engines. He does come back, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any other relevant uh, episodes. The claw is just the claw and he doesn't talk to the claw the claw has never spoken back but pinchy is only technically a character in thomas the magic railroad it's never mentioned again just like the tumbleweed okay (laughs) Mm. which is weird it's it's a strange thing and lots of people have got questions about why has this giant heavy metal monster got a claw is it an illegal modification, an experimental design, a scrapyard diesel? I personally like to think that he's a maintenance engine like Harvey with detachable hook systems that can be changed and swapped for hooks, claws, magnets, wrecking balls, whatever is needed for the situation. Um, but here, it, it really does play to his benefit having this big large claw system that he may just go right pinchy and then a big snap snap to punctuate his evil message to hunt out the lost engine and destroy her to get rid of steam forever some megalomaniac Hmm. thought it was a good idea to attach that to his roof like, yeah, but honestly, like, if, if I had a remote control Diesel 10 as a kid, I would want to move the claw. Which leads really nicely, I guess, into further e- explanation into who Diesel 10 is. And we traverse across the pond back to the human realm where um, Billy Two Feathers, who's one of the station, I guess, or railway staff at the Indingham Valley Railroad, um is talking with uh, Patch, who's one of the kids, uh, or maybe a teenager, who's helping to maintain and look after the station. And they go back and forth about this guy called Burnett Stone, who is played by Academy Award uh, winner Peter Fonda from Ghost Rider, which is a, a, such a weird fit for this film. Um, but in this sequence that we hear coming up, Peter Fonda or uh, Burnett Stone, is going into his hideaway, his workshop, where he receives an unexpected visit from the aforementioned Patch. How did you find me here? I found the entrance to your workshop ages ago. But I would never tell anybody. See that switch on the wall? Flip it on. I guess there was something mysterious about this mountain. Yeah. All mountains have their secrets, Patch. Shouldn't surprise a kid like you. Could I help you, Mr. Stone? Sure. You can help me dust her off. This engine's name is Lady. 
Why is she locked up? She isn't. She's safe from harm. Long ago, I made a mistake as Lady's caretaker. An evil Diesel found Lady and threatened to destroy her. He chased her, used up all her coal. He made her go too fast. And then he crashed her. And I brought her here. I tried my best to fix her up. But I've never been able to make up for the mistake I made. And I've never been able to bring her to life, to make her steam. Hatch, she's as precious as gold. Yes, she is. This scene alone was filled with so much mystery uh, when mm. I watched it, at least as a kid. Like, we saw a life-size steam engine that had this uh, mythos and legacy attached to it. And in the sense of when you saw it for the first time, it looks sad and scorned and a little dilapidated, but, like, you can see that... It's not your average engine. It's got gold, I guess, kind of um, quirks to its uh, structure. And you can hear uh, in the story there, Burnett explaining who Lady is. It's a very special engine that he was the caretaker of. How he got to be the caretaker of Lady? A little bit uncertain. But Mm. uh, he then explains what happened to her. Yeah, one thing's for certain though, like Peter Fonda just absolutely sells this scene. He's just, his voice is just filled with so much emotion. You can tell that he's got an attachment to this engine and that he cares for it deeply, you know. I mean, this is why he's, um, of course, such a revered actor. And I just want to uh, correct Denham, stepping into my role as Captain Pedantry here. Oh, here uh, we go. Peter Fonda, uh, he never actually won an Academy Award. He was nominated for his role in Uli's Gold, and he was also nominated in the screenplay category for Easy Rider way back in 1969. But uh, no, in his lifetime, he never actually won an Academy Award. He deserved but, one, no. though. He, d- he definitely deserved one. He was an absolutely yeah. iconic performer. But um, yes, sadly, no Oscar for him. But of course... You know, he doesn't need an Oscar. I mean, when you see the kind of commitment he gives to this role in a children's film, I mean, it, you know, that alone is all you need to know about the man. Like, it doesn't matter what role he's in, he will just give it his all. Which is sort of an interesting point because Burnett Stone, the character that Peter Fonda is playing, is very much seen as a sad, depressed grandfather who... Mm regrets mistakes in the past and is very much lost on his future and hope and is clinging to the mistakes of his past. Mm. Uh, And Patch even says at the beginning of the movie, he doesn't think that uh, Burnett's a bad person. He's just sad. Mm. Which is absolutely right. And Patch is played by Cody McMaines, who, like, I mean... So much different things he does in this film. He starts off talking to a dog. He then rides some horses. <laughs> He's doing everything. Like, he gets all the fun stuff. <laughs> it's a really cool, like, role. I, I remember uh, when I was younger wanting to be in Patch's role because it just looked like so much fun. Well, now you can um, be Patch. <laughs> Aw. Uh, but 
talking about Patch and Burnett Stone actually leads us to the rest of the inhabitants of the town of Shining Time, such as Stacy and Billy Two Feathers, who we sort of seen a little bit of in the past, and I feel now's a good time to talk about them. Yeah, so we, we've got this ensemble cast that comes with Shining Time Station, and it's interesting um, the characters that they decided to choose um, to, I guess, take from the TV show to the movie. So as we said before, in the show we had Stacey Jones, um, Billy Two Feathers, there was uh, Harry the Engine Driver, Schema, Mr. Conductor, um, and from those, they decided that the best to put in this film were Stacy Jones, the station master, Mr. Conductor, and Billy Two Feathers. Three easy enough to follow characters who oh, pretty like larger than life here. I'm really glad that they um, kept Diddy Com. I think that was quite mm. a nice um, connection to the TV show that it's still the same Shining Time Station that... US and Canadian and New Zealand viewers would know and love. Yes. Uh, so Stacy Jones uh, is the bubbly manager of Shining Time Station, played by Diddy Con, the original actress from the show. We also have Billy Two Feathers, who drives the uh, engine uh, known as the Rainbow Sun here, which, for those interested, uh, is owned by the Strasbourg Railroad in US Pennsylvania. But what I find interesting here is Stacey Jones is the only original actor from Shining Time Station uh, TV show here because the rest have been replaced. Mr. Conductor, who was played by George Carlin or Ringo Starr, is now Alec Baldwin. And Billy Two Feathers who was originally Tom Jackson, is now played at, by Russell Means. Mm. And they do deliver some backstory here about Bernard Stone's childhood drawings, how he used to smile, and then we just sort of leave them. It, it's a real shame because I like these characters and they were going to have a much larger role in the film. In fact, all of Shining Time and the human characters were. It's just that they were cut for one reason, and that is the secondary antagonist, P.T. Boomer. Yes, P.T. Boomer is an old adversary to uh, Burnett Stone, and he too, as well as Diesel 10, was hell-bent on finding this lost engine and Muffle Mountain, where Burnett Stone lives, and he's pestering the neighbourhood of Shining Time to find out where it could possibly be. But this lost engine known as Lady is kept well hidden under lock and key by Burnett, as Patch finds out. That is exactly right, yes. Uh, P.T. Boomer, he was cut from the film because, again, when they showed it to test audiences, the children found his character too menacing. So they decided to just stick with the diesel with the claw on top of its cab. I don't know about you, but aren't bad guys supposed to be bad? Well, yes. yeah, that was my understanding. Yeah, and like me, Doug Lennox, who originally plays P.T. Boone in the original Test Prince, and you can see on the director's cuts 
Blu-rays of it, he does a really good performance of it. And he is really menacing. The issue is, is that he had so many scenes where Stacy, Billy, Patch, Burnett were all discussing how to deal with P.T. Boomer that when he was removed from the film, a lot of their scenes got cut as well, which means we don't get to see that much of Shining Time. I believe there's only one scene in the final film that you can actually see him in now, and that is he's just a guy on a motorbike. It's interesting Ooh. that uh, test audiences found him so scary because when Britt Orcroft directed Doug Lennox to play the character of P.T. Boomer, she really wanted him to be that quintessential pantomime villain. He's doing all the things that you see in those plays and you boo and hiss at those kinds of characters. So I wonder what it is like, especially like you can see in his performance that he's scary, but that as we've spoken about, nothing in the world of Thomas and Shining Time Station leads into volatile. Granted, later in the film, he was supposed to plant some explosives, but the removal of him really is a big reason why a lot of the film feels disjointed. Mm. Uh, it's it's all back to the test audience and the original work print. Uh, if P.T. Boomer was kept in, Diesel 10 wouldn't be the only antagonist. We would get to see a lot more of Shining Time, which is almost feeling a little pointless being there now Mm. since there's no real threat in shining time and the story would have been changed as well in the original print p2 boomer was jealous of burnett stone's relationship with his childhood friend tasha uh later grandma tasha and you know took lady for a run and crashed her it wasn't diesel 10 that crashed lady it was pt boomer which makes a lot more sense um i think it's worth considering the key factors as we go on of the points of the original cut where we feel like it's better to explain um and and there, there are points in this film where um the absence of uh, Doug Lennox is really felt. And I think this is definitely one of them. I feel like um, if he was still there, like it would have been such a memorable, I guess, part of the story that we would have like only experienced once. And it's interesting that like Connie mentioned, like about the explosives, like this is stuff that they've since done in the CGI series and gotten away with. Um, I think now we're kind of in safer times where we can do that. But, it's interesting to see that everything that was left on the cutter's floor was so ruthlessly uh, gotten rid of. Um, but in the essence of itself, despite all this, I found the characters that we saw at Shining Time for the time that we saw them was quite nice. Um, we mm. kind of get a sense later on of the warmth that Stacey Jones brings and the leadership that Billy Two Feathers has and the intuitiveness um, and that investigative side of um, Patch, who's um, finding out about this lost engine and helping Burnett. Here's the connection between Shining Time 
and Muffle Mountain. I think he's very much a backbone here in terms of the human cast. So it's really interesting uh, seeing him flip between both sides of the mountain. On the note of the removal of P.T. Boomer, who was originally a lot scarier, we also have, I feel, the point where I've lost all respect for Diesel 10. And that is with the introduction of his comedic lackeys, Splatter and Dodge, who will henceforth be referred to as Splodge because we don't have time to say both names. Gee, we're only like, what, 10, 15 minutes into the movie and we're still introducing characters? I mean, this yeah. is... <laughs> and, and guess what? We haven't even reached the main cast yet. The main cast isn't full yet. No, we've still got um, still another character to go. But yes, anyhow, uh, Splodge, they are two Class 8 shunters, which of course is the basis of the original Diesel, the devious Diesel, if you will, that uh, had to came to a disagreement with Duck and Sir Topham Hatt. Let's put it that mm. way. Um, but yes, Splodge is... Splodge, Splatter, whatever you want to call them. These two diesels, uh, one's purple, one's more of like an olivey colour, and they essentially serve as twice the amount of comic relief. There's no straight man here. There's no comic sidekick. So they're just there to sprout one-liners, really. They are the comedic relief on top of the comedic relief that Pinchy provides, which is... Yes. uh, It's a lot. Which is the issue. So the scene before this was the emotional scene with Peter Fonda um, and Patch, you know, talking about Lady and she crashed. And then we get Diesel Ted crying at the beautiful sculpture Pinchy made of himself as Splodge roll up. And then he explains his plan of, oh, destroy them, destroy, destroy, destroy. Ooh, and and then Pinchy punches Diesel Ten in the face. Mm. It's very it's... like the, the 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 tonal shift goes from left to right, and I can see both sides. I think one thing I quite like about the transition between these two scenes is that we're talking about this menacing Diesel who's done all these things, and he's still as camp as they come i get a kind of grinch vibe from diesel 10 in this scene where he's kind of reveling in his own ego um but at Mm. the same time i think if this was handled with a lot more care um it could have been a lot better Mm. the sculpture i would like to say is fine plenty of villains want to replace the president heads on mount rushmore okay that's Mm. a staple but not many of them proceed to start hitting themselves with their schizophrenic mechanical arm. It's, it's, it's not often that happens and it makes no sense, especially when Diesel 10 seems to be the only one that refers to Pinchy as a separate entity. Like, does he have control over Pinchy? Does he not? Everyone else seems to go that it's Diesel that's, con- well, Diesel 10 that's controlling Pinchy, but then Pinchy has a, his own mind these are the um, many questions of our life kind of we're in a world with autonomous talking trains i think any logic that the film has at this point is just flown out the window so he may as well just throw anything at the audience at this point fine fine as long as we don't go to any really short men doing weird yodeling practice before they talk to a dog. Well, it's funny you say that because that <laughs> is one of the next characters that we go along to. 
Maybe for another time, uh, we, we have a bit more of a formal introduction with Mr. Conductor, who is getting ready to go to the island of Sodor, because the Fat Controller, also Topham Hat in the States, has gone on holiday, and he has asked Mr. Conductor, one of the Conductor family, may I add, um, to look after the railway in his absence. And in this, he's telling uh, Billy Two Feathers that the threat of Diesel 10 is there, I'm not so sure, like, how the Fat Controller knows Diesel 10 is around. Perhaps, maybe, he's asked Diesel 10 to come to the island of Sodor to work or something. Hence, he's being there and kind of deviating away from doing any work. Um, but in all this, uh, we learn that uh, Mr. Conductor is saying his farewells. He's saying goodbye to Billy, to Stacy, and to Mutt before he goes. It is actually a really well-paced scene. I love the music. I love the actual editing of this short conductor man being on the tiny ledge, talking to the trains and playing around with the fictional door handle on the painting of his home. It's really good to play around with the imagination. Yeah, it's it's very great humour here. And it's very peculiar to see an actor with the calibre like Alec Baldwin to really play like this. And Alec Mm. Baldwin does say, like, as he talks about this movie, that he had so much fun reveling in this kind of stuff and, like, he doesn't really Mm. get the opportunity to do that in his very serious acting. Like, I know Alec Baldwin for films like Beetlejuice and he's in a plethora of things, but I think it's really interesting seeing him watching his film as an adult it's really interesting to see him i guess kind of treat the stage as a bit of a sandbox for himself as an actor mm. yeah very true and it's especially interesting when you see in contrast well when you contrast this character with his roles in movies like working girl or the hunt for red october or the departed and you can you can tell he is having fun he is very much enjoying himself like he again he commits himself to the role good on him for it Hmm. So uh, Mr. C travels to Sodor where Thomas picks him up. He then just casually teleports 10 feet inside Thomas's cab. Yeah, using the gold dust, which he's apparently running out of too, might we add. Oh, yes. But I'm sure that won't come back to bite him later. (laughs) Of course not. (laughs) And then, and then. And we're in a city in America where we meet 15 minutes into the film. 15 minutes into the film, we now meet our lead actress, Mara Wilson. Oh, finally. So we've introduced everybody at this point. Am I right in thinking that? Yes. Okay, good. So um, Mara Wilson, she is playing the character of Lily, who is the granddaughter of Burnett Stone. And she is discussing with her mother about going to visit him. And she shows she's a little bit apprehensive and she's still feeling sad about her grandmother passing away. And but beyond that we don't know why she's really apprehensive is it homesickness is that is it that she doesn't get along with her father or something grandfather rather or something like that but um yeah I I think it's a short scene but it it's nice I guess you know it's pleasant enough it helps develop the character it helps us understand what role she has in the story and um yeah that's all I have to say about that (laughs) Yeah, it's it, it, it's fun to see an actress like Mara Wilson here. And I think she does her role really well. And I think it's important to factor as well that Mara Wilson um, 
in her own personal life was facing a lot of stuff, um, probably of the mm-hmm. nature that we can't talk on the podcast here today. But it's really fascinating to know that was going on in the background. And this was, was it was one of her final children's films that she did. Yeah. It was actually, it was her final appearance as a child actress in a Hollywood movie. And she wouldn't return again to a Hollywood role for a good 10 or 15 years. But again, we will have to discuss that another time because, uh, you know, uh, honestly, guys, I've been talking about this first 20 minutes, the first act of the movie. <laughs> We've devoted more time to this than we have any single episode of Thomas the Tank Engine and Friends. So oh, consider yourself spoiled. So, and we've still got so much more to get to, but I fear, lads, that we might have to leave it for another episode of the podcast. And that brings us to the end of another episode, but we'll be talking about Thomas and the Magic Railroad again very soon. But in the meantime, why don't you engage with us on our social media platforms? Yes, there's our Instagram, T-T-T-E underscore right on track. There is, of course, our Facebook page as well, facebook.com forward slash right on track Thomas podcast. And there is our Twitter at on track Thomas. So send us a message. Tell us your thoughts on the show, on the movie. Let us know what has been going on in the Thomas world and all your thoughts and opinions. We love hearing from you. But in the meantime, I'm still Connor. I'm still Parry. And I'm still Denim. And this has been on the Ride on Track podcast. Adios, guys. Farewell. Bye-bye.